Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here with Bob Latino. If you don't know Bob, he is the CEO of Reliability Center. He's available. His website is www.reliability.com. He is a speaker. He is an author of Root Cause Analysis, Improving Performance for the Bottom Line Results and Patient Safety. And that includes the PROAC Root Cause Approach. Bob, how's it going? Very good. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thanks for coming on. I I really wanted to get you on because you do a ton of root cause analysis, and I think it's something in our industry that some people don't necessarily do correctly. I would agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, like like the one thing I've seen in the past is a lot of people use 5Y as a kind of a quick and dirty method, and and it seems like, well, one, it's it's kind of a biased approach. Two is it doesn't get down to the root cause of the actual failure, but we'll get into that in a bit. So first thing is, can you give us a broad overview of what root cause analysis is and why we should use it? Well, I'll give it to you from my perspective, because as you just described, there's a lot of people that uh, define it differently. So I can just define it as we espouse it. Um, you know, the, the, I don't think that there's a provider out there in, in the RCA business who likes the term R- RCA or root cause analysis, because it's a very misleading term. It, you know, it assumes that failure, that uh, root cause analysis is linear and that you have a single root cause. And anybody worth their salt in this business doesn't believe that that's what RCA really is. But, you know, we're, we're stuck with the term because, you know, if you want to call it critical thinking analysis, you know, who's going to go Google that term? You know, you're just stuck with a poor term of uh, RCA. So uh, in, in the there's no universally accepted definition for it either. So that makes it worse. So what anybody is doing with uh, RCA to solve problems, they're going to call it RCA. We, we view RCA a little bit uh, more holistically. Uh, it's not a it's a system and it's not just a simple task. A lot of people say, you know, I had this major catastrophe. We're going to go do an investigation. And, uh, you know, they, they, they do that. They may do it well. And then it goes into a filing cabinet. And, uh, you know, it's not leveraged in any capacity. So they see RCA as a task and not a, a more comprehensive system. And, you know, you, you described the RCA 
Uh, a lot of people use five whys and call it RCA. I, I'm not one of those. I, I don't see five whys as a valid root cause analysis tool for, for numerous reasons. Uh, the, the linearity of it, the single cause, uh, and the lack of evidence to support uh, what people are saying. So we, we, we re- use that type of tool. I'm saying it has its place, but you know we, we call that, uh, it would be shallow cause analysis if you're using five whys as a root cause analysis tool. So essentially for me, RCA has a public relations problem because the term has a negative connotation in the marketplace. And it's, to me, it's effectively useless as a term. How's that? Well, that's a pretty bold statement to start off with. <laughs> no, I definitely agree. Like root cause, I mean, especially with five whys is it's very, like, it's definitely a shallow cause analysis and it's definitely like a low level type thinking. Yeah, I mean, I don't know why it's not, you know, if you're going to go that way, why is it uh, not three Ys or 10 Ys? I don't know where the magic number five comes from. So it sounds good, I guess. <laughs> so like if we're going to do a, you know, an actual root cause investigation, what types of failures should we do them on? Yeah, I guess th- this comes back to my perspective on on using root cause analysis as a as a system and not as a task. It's most, you know, RCA has a negative connotation because uh, usually we have to hit a trigger and it's either going to be somebody's hurt, uh, you lost a lot of money, you have a regulatory fine, but there's triggers that would say we mandate we have to do an RCA. Well, it's really too late by that. I'm not, I'm not advocating that you don't do it then. I'm just saying you're not optimizing the value of the tool. That's a totally reactive use of the uh, RCA tool is that there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to use that on uh, proactive types of failures, the uh, chronic type of failures, the ones that happen every day but don't uh, rise up to the level of a, uh, of a trigger that's been set. Uh, there's no reason we can't do an RCA on high risks that you find in your safety efforts, in your uh, FMEAs. There's no reason, uh, you know, when you you typically you find out that 20% of the failure modes account for 80% of your losses and your risks. Well, why can't you go ahead and make that the top of your uh, your event and your RCA and say, you know, why do we have these risks that are so high? And use the exact same uh, thought, uh, breaking down the cause and effects of that to come to the conclusions. So, you know, we're, we're big advocates for the proactive side of the RCA. But that's not very sexy because, uh, you know, there's no urgency associated with uh, attacking opportunities. So usually when we're in a reactive state, you know, your adrenaline's up and everybody's pumped and you go out and say that we're going to apply RCA under those conditions. But there's no actually no reason that we can't do this on the, uh, the more chronic type of stuff. Yeah, so that to me is is more of a reliability engineering approach versus just like, I don't know what we call it, but like the reactive side is kind of, it's, it's similar, I think in, in uh, like I work at oil analysis and, and we kind of look at it the same way as like, are you doing it proactively? Or are you just looking to find failures, which is again, it's reactive. Like it's on the predictive maintenance side, but it's still reactive. Yeah. Why do, why do we have to wait for something to happen when we can, assess it from a risk standpoint versus wait for the consequences to, to materialize. Absolutely. And so if we were going to do like, let's say like, um, I guess it was a few weeks ago, um, 
Joe Anderson came on the podcast and he was talking about how minor incidents and, and what he defined a minor incident was something that took production down for 10 minutes or less. And he was saying that that's generally the most, like it causes the most downtime across, you know, manufacturing operations. How would we do a root cause analysis on, you know, something like that? Well, you know, we, we, we utilize a tool to aggregate things like that called opportunity analysis. And uh, essentially the equation for it is simply the frequency times the cost per impact. And when you're looking at cost per impact, if you looked at the labor that um, you had to use to address that, that one little situation, uh, if you had to expend any materials to get back to a steady state, and whatever your lost profit opportunity costs were or your, your downtime cost. Collectively, if you add those together and multiply it by how often it happens a year, it's kind of, th those collectively are going to far outweigh any of these sporadic events that you have. So that, that really doing it, going about it that way makes the business case for why you should be doing RCA on things that did not meet a trigger. So it's extremely important for those uh, in terms of the chronics. Now, a lot of people don't believe that the chronics lead to sporadics. Um, I'm not one of those. I, I think that uh, left unattended, uh, those chronic things that happen uh, uh, on any given day, if you, if you had one new thing happen, then that, that's the, the, the hole in the cheese that uh, allows that to line up and cause a catastrophe. You know, I'll, I'll use uh, Challenger on that one, and everybody uses Challenger, but, you know, it was an O-ring failure. You know, the, 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 the thing that was different on that day, because that design flaw was there on all the previous missions, had it not been 36 degrees that day and a decision to launch, you wouldn't have had that failure. Well, conversely, it had been 36 degrees on any other day of the launch, it would have happened then. So, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were a lot of latent situations with that. But we have to we have to understand that the value uh, for RCA for me is that we want to be able to do it proactively. I don't want to have to deal with the, the the disasters that happen. I want to be on the risk side and saying how do, how can I prevent them from happening? Absolutely, and I think that opportunity analysis is something that our industry doesn't do very well. I mean, there's definitely people who do it well, but it's it's like. If we aggregate, like in theory, we should be aggregating kind of all failures, well, not necessarily failures, but all downtime, opportunity, safety, environmental events over the life cycle of our plant or mine or whatever, and then really pick out the biggest ones and attack them first. Yeah, like I said, if you, if you go ahead and do a Pareto of something like that, you're, you're going to find a whole bunch of things that uh, you never uh, really thought about because... The frequency is the parameter that we rarely don't look at. You know, even when you uh, have the bad actor list, you know, th th those tend to be short term focused because, you know, I, what is a bad actor today may not be a bad actor next week. And, you know, I move on to something new the week after. When you when you annualize the frequency of these chronic things that happen every shift and it may only take 10 minutes uh, and you you show that those results to a CFO over an annualized period. So that, that, that's a big deal. I'll give you a, a quick case from uh, the healthcare industry that we can all relate to is that when we go into the emergency room and uh, they take our blood, uh, this is uh, an analysis, an opportunity analysis we did with a hospital that we ended up publishing. 
but uh, we were looking at how often they have to redraw the blood in the emergency room. And uh, we were finding out that, you know, it seems like something, it's a no brainer. And that when, you know, for whatever reason you have to draw blood again, you know, how much can it cost? Well, if you look at the hospital as a system, you know, it's not just the person who's drawing the blood from you, but then it's got to be put into the, uh, the container and then it's got to be labeled properly. Then it's got to get to a lab and then the lab has to look at it and, and then, then it comes back. Well, there's a whole, that, that whole system is fraught with possibilities of things that could go wrong. Well, in this uh, analysis that we did, we found out that the average cost of a redraw, when they had put all these numbers together, uh, was about $300. And that really wasn't the startling part. It was happening 10,000 times a year. So you do the math, that's $3 million a year that is built into the cost of doing business, and nobody questions the need to have to do a redraw. There's a ton of those type of things in industry. And a lot of times they're not even in your CMMS systems because uh, it takes longer to put it in the CMMS system than it does to implement the workaround or the fix. So it's in the heads of the people uh, that are closest to the work. So that's where your real value is. We, we got to get that information out of those people uh, and put it into a business case that the so they can relate to the, uh, the CFO types, the finance people. Yeah, that's a great example. That's a really great example. So let's get back to look at let's get back to root cause analysis. And so if let's say we were we had a significant failure at our site and we wanted to do a root cause analysis on it, how do we like what steps do we take? What resources do we need and how long would it take? Well, uh, the, the vision I like to put in people's minds is say, what does any other investigative occupation do when things like that happen? Because re really, we're just uh, reliability detectives when, when you're in an industrial setting. Uh, the process of a, a proper investigation, the, the steps are no different uh, from a criminologist standpoint uh, versus, uh, you know, if you're in the nuclear field, the healthcare field, you know, they just have different incidents. The, the thought processes of them, the steps are the same. For us, you know, what do you see when you see on NCIS, uh, CSI type of shows? Step one is the preservation and analysis of evidence. You know, they, they, they put the uh, caution tape around it, uh, the police tape, and they freeze everything. Uh, that's, that's what we need to do. Uh, oftentimes, when you look at weaknesses in RCA efforts, uh, when anybody is time pressured, what they typically do will implement shortcuts. Well, the most time-consuming part of an RCA is going to be the collection of evidence. So that's where most of the shortcuts take place. We, we, we don't go through the effort uh, and the uh, discipline of collecting what we need at the, uh, you know, in quotes, crime scene. Once we're able to go ahead and establish the initial uh, data collection efforts, uh, then we have to have uh, a team put together that's going to be an effective team, an appropriate team. And the one thing that we tell our students is that, you know, the lead investigator should not have anything to lose or gain by the outcome. These should be unbiased people who have nothing to, uh, to lose or gain by the outcome. Otherwise, uh, they're going to, to taint the analysis or their critics are going to uh, use that against them. So if there's one thing I say in terms of the teaming aspects of that is that, you know, have somebody who's a facilitator, not a participator. All right. Once we have all the data and then we have the proper eyes looking at this uh, particular incident, 
Now we have to go through the failure reconstruction stage. Now we use something we call a logic tree, uh, which goes through a very disciplined uh, cause and effect questioning process to create hypotheses. When you create a hypothesis, uh, when you create the hypotheses, then you're going to have to use that evidence that we collected earlier to be able to prove or disprove all of these things that we come up with. Uh, the things that we uh, continue to find out to be true, we, we drill deeper and deeper uh, until we uncover uh, the, the various types of uh, root causes that we, uh, at least the labels that we use of physical, human, and latent. Now, a lot of the people, uh, there's a lot of people out there who are detractors from the logic tree approach, because, uh, again, when you're using cause and effect, they, in their minds, they see linearity. But failure typically does not have a single pathway. They, it has pathways in parallel. So there are nonlinear interfaces that occur that can be graphically expressed. So that's, that's uh, typically the way that we approach that side of it. Uh, and, uh, and to those people that I, uh, there's a, uh, a tape we used to use in our class a long time ago from a, uh, a futurist named Joel Barker. He said, those who say something is impossible should get out of the way of those who are doing it. And that's the way I feel about, uh, you know, our use of a logic tree and in the manner in which we execute it. Once, once you have the analysis done, the analytical part, you know, that, that I call this my 50% line because now uh, uh, it's the 50% are the headaches because now you have to communicate your findings and recommendations and get something done about it. Just, just the fact that we have a bunch of recommendations uh, doesn't mean that anybody's implemented anything yet. So there has to be a tracking mechanism to be able to say that, uh, you know, we, we have followed through completely. And just because we followed through completely doesn't mean that we have uh, demonstrated a bottom line benefit. So we have to track for bottom line benefits. Any recommendations you have from an RCA should have a metric to track that shows its effectiveness. You know, just because I go out there and I, and I implement, uh, you know, use a, a checklist and say, well, I did this, I did this. Well, that really doesn't matter. If things didn't get better, then you may have had the wrong recommendation. You may have done it poorly. You may have not have found all the right causes. So RCA effectiveness should not be measured by the fact that we, we, did, we did tasks. Something on the bottom line has to go back to those finance people you were talking to to justify to say, we took these actions and it generated this type of uh, ROI. So when you take all of those collectively, those steps, for us, it's, it spells out PROACT, which is, you know, just our brand of it. The PR is preserving evidence. The O is the organizing of the team. The A is the analyzing of the evidence. The C is communicating findings and recommendations. And lastly, the T is to track. That's a mouthful, isn't it, Rob? <laughs> no, that was a great answer. So uh, th that's one thing I, I think that, again, is is another thing that we struggle with is like reliability engineers as a whole, we're really good at, you know, coming up with recommendations, but we're not necessarily good at implementing them and ensuring that whatever we implemented is actually doing anything beneficial. Yeah, it, it, it has to circle back to finance. I mean, you're not going to get the, uh, the money and the resources you need 
uh, unless you can demonstrate that uh, all of that activity is generating a, a, a net value to the uh, organization. Yeah, I mean, that's like, now how do you, I guess that kind of leads me to this next question. Um, how do you feel about organizations that have like these general rules for root cause? Like you need to do a root cause analysis on every failure that's over, you know, X dollars or some safety risk. Like given that, you know, the, the threshold is generally, I mean, I've seen them that are pretty low. Like how is it even possible to implement recommendation like that, that many recommendations that quickly? Well, I think that, uh, and you know, we're, we're dealing with uh, non-specifics here, but that if you have that many types of failures, if, if a lot of times that those failures are similar and that the, the types of causes that you come up with from a system standpoint, uh, you're gonna, they're going to be the same. Because when you get down into systemic failures, uh, deficiencies in our organizational systems, uh, then uh, they're going to not, they're going to affect a lot more than just the failure that you're working on. If you have, uh, you know, a, a training issue in your organization where there's a lack of effectiveness of training or we're not providing it to the right people, that, that's not going to be just be for the failure that you're working on. That's going to affect other uh, areas of your, your operations. So systemically, uh, organizational deficiencies aren't that they don't affect one person they're not made for one person they're made for a population and therefore uh you're working on more than the failure that you're on now when you address systemic roots yeah that's a good that's a good point so let's get into that so like what types of root causes like you mentioned physical human latent do you want to break each of those down for us and kind of explain like, give us an example of what one would be. And well, uh, first of all, you know, th these are labels that we use: uh, physical, human, and latent. And th there's not a generic set out there. Uh, and you know, different providers have different labels. But conceptually, when you're uh, drilling down from an undesirable outcome that has occurred, you're going to go through all three of these phases. You're going to go through the physics of the failure. Uh, then you're going to, uh, beneath the physics of the failure, you're going to have a, a human uh, contribution. It's going to be an error of omission or an error of commission. And then beneath that, where the meat is for a root cause analysis, is to is not understanding who made a bad decision. We typically don't care about the who. You want to understand why that person on that day felt it was the right decision. And when you start getting in and exploring human reasoning, which is one of the, our fortes, is that you want to say, you know, that, that person didn't come to work. This is how they feed their family. They didn't come to work saying, I'm really going to screw up everything today. Their decisions were generally of, of, of well intent and that normally uh, anybody else in the same position would have made the same decision. So we have to understand why they felt it was the right thing to do. And that usually is going to uncover all these system flaws. You know, these are our policies and our procedures, our training mechanisms, our uh, how we uh, do our purchasing, for instance. And it's not always these organizational systems also include the, the lack of managerial oversight. It doesn't mean that we don't have the rules. It means that people have veered away from the rules, taking all these shortcuts and uh, that, you know, when the shortcuts work out, all of a sudden uh, they're heroes. But when the shortcuts don't work out, we discipline them. 
So where is the uh, organizational oversight that starts to see this drift away from a standard uh, because of these shortcuts and we're not uh, either, you know, fixing the standard or uh, trying to uh, stop the the drift away from the the standard that was set. So that's, you know, that's how it works out for us is that, you know, if if you're not getting down into understanding the human reasoning, you're not doing root cause analysis. If you stop and you blame somebody, you're, you're, uh, you're, there's a saying for this, and, and I like it, and I forget where it comes from. But we as, as leadership often judge people uh, on their decisions based on the outcome of the decision. However, we as leadership uh, want other people to judge us on our decisions based on our intent. If you're doing a proper RCA, you, you should be uh, looking at the intent of the decisions and not just based on the outcomes of the decisions. Uh, yeah, that's that's like um, we, I hear that a lot in poker or economics. We talk about that called like uh, don't be results oriented in your like when you analyze your decisions. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it, this doesn't just apply to where we work, but this always applies in general about how we we judge anybody about anything. But uh, you know, you have to look for the rationale for the decision and, and anything that went that didn't go as planned, we have to look at, you know, what was the intent and, and why did they believe it to be true? That, that's really what uh, RCA in our mind is all about. I, I did want to touch one thing that you were talking about, Rob, earlier, that, that uh, when you, you know, how much effort do you put towards the RCA and, uh, and based on the severity of it? You know, you do a $5 failure, you do a $5 analysis on a $5 failure. Uh, but when you have something that hits that trigger, you know, you usually have a bunch of uh, the suits show up for that. And then, you know, this is a high visibility type of thing. We don't, we don't want to do a, uh, a shallow cause analysis where a root cause analysis uh, needs to be done. Uh, you also asked me about the how long does this take? And then I wanted to quote a manager who asked me that. And it's a you know, it's a very generic question. Uh, I said, well, my answer to him was, if, if you have a team that puts 25% of their time to the analysis, it will take four times as long to do the analysis. Because it, it, the analysis will uh, accelerate based on the priority of the event. And, uh, you know, it's important to somebody who's important. When, when you look at the things that are triggered, they're, they're, they're urgent now because it's, uh, you know, typically your, your production is down or somebody's hurt or something like that. But think about how hard it is to pursue the opportunities when there's that urgency doesn't exist, but they may be 10 times more costly on an annualized basis than these uh, sporadic type of failures. So that this is a, a leadership thing where they have to understand, uh, you know, the what's the best way to leverage uh, the, the finance side of the RCA as opposed to only doing it after really bad things happen. There's a lot of money on the table uh, for these chronic type of failures, much more money than you experience on the sporadic stuff. Sorry if I got off track there, Rob. No, no, no. So would would you recommend like doing an opportunity as, as like analysis kind of on an annual basis to see where you your organization is and then kind of prioritize your work that way? It's probably too broad to be done, uh, you know, depending on the size of your organization to do it on the whole organization. Uh, I, I definitely on operating and business units, uh, I would recommend doing that type of work. And, and uh, I'll be quite blunt with you as I, I don't, I don't 
typically see people doing it at all, even though we teach it in every class that we do. And it's because there's a there's no regulatory driver to do it. They don't have to do it. You know, once you cross that uh, that trigger, you're you know you have a regulatory ob- obligation to understand why it went wrong. But uh, unfortunately, in the proactive world, it's uh, it becomes optional. Well, that's that's the nature of our industry, right? It's it's all about switching from that proactive or the reactive mindset to the proactive mindset. Well, that, you know. Uh, or, I don't know if you want. Uh, when we we were uh, originally a reliability R and D group back in 1970s, and I'm just going to go through the part about the organizational chart because nobody there at that time there really wasn't uh, reliability engineering was a new field. It's nearly 50 years ago, and when you're putting that on the organizational chart, you know we we always saw maintenance as the today people and reliability as the tomorrow people. But if you put reliability subordinate to a maintenance department, uh, then you're going to have people whose job is to be proactive. They're going to be having to yield to all the reactive work and they'll get to the uh, proactive work when they get a chance. They'll never get a chance. So that's why we we had made those separate departments that they couldn't be uh, subordinate to each other. Because, uh, in the, you know, if, if you're a uh, reliability engineer and you're put in the maintenance department in uh, and, and organizations that do have those separate entities, then you're always going to be called upon for the reactive stuff. And, and you, you know, it, it becomes frustrating, too, for those type of people who are proactive. So why do you think that everyone puts reliability engineers in a maintenance department? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's been par for the course for us. Now, we've been uh, independent of uh, Allied Chemical for 40-some years now. But uh, I, I, we just see it repeated over and over is that, you know, to be a truly reliable organization, you have to be looking at tomorrow. And when you uh, have to deal with the reactive stuff, that, that pulls you away from the proactive side and it pushes you into the reactive side. So given the choice, the urgency is going to take, the urgency of the day is going to take over and you're not going to be able to seize the opportunities of tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. And that's, uh, you know, and that's why you see, like, at least talking about what we're talking about is that's why you see the bigger sporadic failures take precedence over the, you know, the small failures that happen every day. Yeah, those are the ones that get attention. But, you know, really, the, the uh, more progressive managements are going to wonder why it got to that point. Why didn't we pick it up earlier? For sure. So one thing I wanted to ask you, Bob, was how do we know that we got to the lowest level for a cause? Because I, I think a lot of people, or at least what I've seen, is they stop at a level that's, you know, higher than something that they can fix, you know, like you mentioned it, like where we're blaming the operator or blaming the mechanic for something. Now, how do we know we got to the actual lowest level? Well, uh, you, you know, getting, you have to get, for us, you have to get down into these latency issues. You know, there's never a single uh, latent root cause. When I was going through earlier of the, the physical, human, and latent, think about it. If you stop at the physical level, it's easier uh, because uh, we call those parts replacers. You know, we, we, we say that we had fatigue on this, so uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to replace the part. Well, 
if you don't understand why uh, you uh, had fatigue on that part, then the next part you're going to have in, you're going to get to do another analysis because the same thing is going to happen. So if, uh, if you go a step deeper and you say, well, you know, we had this person who misaligned and, uh, you know, that's uh, we're going to have to discipline them because, you know, we can't have people out there misaligning. So if you go ahead and you discipline that person, are you getting rid of the problem of, of misalignment? No, because you don't understand why that person didn't know how to align properly. Did you did you give them the training? Did you give them the tools? And how come there wasn't a, a, some supervisory oversight that realized that you had a, a person in a position that was not qualified to do the job? So unless you get beneath understanding why that person chose to align in the way that they did, then you're going to have uh, more problems because uh, you have not uh, untapped the, the systemic uh, contributions to the problem. And, you know, you could take these analyses if you wanted back to Adam and Eve, because I, I can drill down further into understanding, you know, why why the regulatory laws are the way that they are. And, you know, then you're going to get back into Congress and you're going to get into, you know, so how, how deep do you have to go uh, in any given analysis? Well, for me, it's it's to the point you go to the to the depth where you have control to make the change. You know, I, I don't uh, you know. Maybe my boss's boss had developed a procedure that was obsolete 20 years ago. Am I gonna am I gonna go back and say, well, why would he have done that? No, it's it's irrelevant to me uh, for right now. Uh, I'm not gonna go back and understand why Congress does what they does uh, they do because nobody would understand it. It's a matter it's a matter of going down to where the solution to me the solution is obvious is that when you get down and you understand that the uh, these mechanisms that are put in place to help us make better decisions aren't working, then we have to fix, we have to fix those mechanisms. Awesome. Let's get one more question in before we, before we wrap up. And so that last question is, what do you think the most common mistake that you see that people make doing a root cause analysis and how do we, how do we avoid making that mistake? Well, I think that the most common people, common mistake people make is uh, that they already know the answer, and that uh, why why the why the heck do I have to put this RCA team together when I have the answer? So they just go through the motions of having this team uh, get to the same conclusion that they wanted them to. So they drive them to the conclusion that they want. This is what happens when you put the expert in, in the nature of the failure in charge of the failure is that they they will lead the team to predetermined conclusions. And when you're on a team with the perceived expert, then they're very intimidating because they're, they're probably the, the, uh, the old timers like myself, uh, the, the veterans out there. And uh, you don't want to ask the seemingly stupid question to this person. So we, we just tend to, you know, agree. We, we, we roll with it. So uh, we, we forego the, the, the discipline and the depth of asking, you know, how could something happen, using evidence to back it up, uh, drilling down past the whodunit and getting into the systems that uh, made sense at the time. So I, I think a lot of times we, we take the shortcuts uh, because uh, the expectation is not there to, to actually go through all the, the discipline. Yeah, and I think I think that also, you know, like you mentioned an expert, but it also comes back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast where you said having somebody who's a facilitator who has, you know, who's unbiased 
Well, they, uh, there's a book years ago, uh, and he had a lot of books, Eli Goldratt uh, of the gold. One thing, one excerpt I took out of that book was, uh, an expert is not someone that gives you the right answers, but someone that asks you the right questions. That's really what someone uh, who leads a, uh, an RCA team should be. Even if you had the answer, you shouldn't give it to them. You, you should ask them a question so that they have to derive uh, that in their own minds. They have to derivate going through the cause and effect relationships to come up with what you want them to come up with. But uh, if I just give somebody the answer and they didn't have to go through that in their mind, then they, they didn't learn. Absolutely. Yeah, they didn't learn. They didn't even like they'll probably repeat the mistake or they won't it will, they won't be part of the change like the culture change either well i mean that's like the the organizations that will have an rca software program where uh, you, you simply uh it goes through a series of drop down boxes and you just keep picking until you don't have to pick anymore because you've met some regulatory requirement that you've picked enough boxes <laughs> That answers the question. Uh, that's why there's five and five whys. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of the, about the difficulties of our business, in, and I speak in general, is that, you know, we're, we're in the business of uncovering the truth. And most of the time, people don't want to know the truth. So you, you, there's the rub. You're going to have to have the fortitude to fight for the truth because you're going to get a lot of resistance because the truth usually involves that, uh, you know, leadership was uh, involved in the sense that they're in charge of policies, uh, procedures, and all of these organizational systems. And if they're flawed, uh, you know, they, they perceive that as you blaming them. However, when we're at a human route and we have that mechanic who misaligned, we have no problem disciplining them. <laughs> but when you turn the mirror and you look at it and say, well, you're part of the problem, that, that's when everything starts to collapse. <laughs> it's, it's easy to place blame on somebody that's not yourself. Yeah, it gets right back to that, you know, uh, judging people based on outcomes and versus intent. Same thing. So, I mean, first off, Bob, you know, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your expertise on root cause. Um, do you, if someone wanted to buy a root cause analysis from, reliability center where would they how would they get in touch with you where could they find your you know your stuff oh, just uh, reliability.com uh, most everything we have on there is uh, things that we do in terms of consulting and uh, training and uh, all the, the software tools to make your investigations more efficient so uh, that's typically how we operate out of there Perfect. And then um, are there any conferences that you're going to that you're going to be speaking at or any books that you want people to read that you've written? Anything like that? Uh, the books should be on there. Uh, the Improving Performance for Bottom Line Results, that, that's in its fourth edition right now. Uh, there's another one. It's basically a rewrite of that same book, except for the healthcare industry. It's uh, the, the, the ProAct approach to uh, patient safety. So uh, th those those two are, if you wanted to get, catch up on methodology. So other than that, you know, just, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm, as you know, Rob, I'm, I'm heavy on LinkedIn. So if you looked me up on LinkedIn and want to have any type of conversation or uh, if I can give you any uh, 
reference guides and tools to, to help you go ahead and do better investigations. That's what we're all about. Perfect. Yeah. So everyone follow Bob on LinkedIn. We'll put his, um, I'll put the link to his profile in the podcast notes. Um, Bob, one thing I wanted to, I want to have you back on to talk about the correlation between reliability and life. Yeah, that, that ought to be interesting. You're definitely going to have polar uh, opposites on that one. <laughs> <laughs> There's that one. And then I also wanted to talk to you about your investigation into reliability and safety. Yeah, there's, uh, it's, it's been a quite a, uh, an interesting topic. And uh, I've bounced around on the two different, I go to the different conferences on safety, and then I go to the conferences on reliability and maintenance, and uh, the, they could not view it more differently. And I'm just try, in the middle trying to figure out why they both see it so differently. <laughs> I've, I've written, and uh, I guess I seem like an instigator going from one side to the other side, but uh, I'm truly just trying to understand how such bright people on both sides see it so differently. Yeah, that's, we'll, we'll have back on to talk about that more. Yeah, I look forward to it. Perfect. So, Bob, thanks for coming on. For everyone who's listening, subscribe to the podcast. It's available on, I believe it's 11 different platforms now. Wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to it. Rob's Reliability Project. If you have any questions or inquiries or you want to appear on the podcast, email me at robsreliabilityproject, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can, again, just message me on LinkedIn. Uh, Bob and I are, are LinkedIn warriors, so we're always on there. <laughs> there's a, on my LinkedIn page, if you look at all the articles on there, there's, there's a lot of really uh, decent reference guides related to why parts fail and uh, a lot of different tools that you could use. So I invite you to go ahead and take advantage of just downloading those. Perfect. Yeah, do that. And then also one thing I wanted to mention was we got, um, I got a demo from the, on the ProAx software and you guys have a bunch of, uh, I guess they're root causes in there over, you know, how many ever 20, 30 years of experience. And there's really a ton of value in there. And so for anyone who's out there looking for a software, hit up Bob for, you know, maybe purchase it or hit up Bob for uh, a walkthrough. It's, it's a great software. There's tons of value in there. And I would like to, to put a plug for that. that that's the uh, Proact On Demand. That's a cloud application where you don't really even need us involved in it. Uh, it's a subscriber. It's a subscription once a year. And uh, it has the, uh, the RCA templates as, as a feature within them. And uh, I think it's like 50 bucks a month or something. I mean, so, I mean, if you're looking at a cheap buy-in, if you're, you're not working on a failure where you're going to get 10 times that, then it may not be worth it to you. But <laughs> I mean, for, for that kind of money, you can go out there and make millions off of it on the, those chronic failures that you, uh, if you annualize them. So th thanks for reminding me about that. No, absolutely. It's, it's a great software and I was, I was very impressed with it. Yeah. Thank you.